Let's turn to the Lord in prayer this morning. Thank you, Father, that we stand purified and holy in your sight because of the purity and holiness of your Son. And we do ask, Father, that you would help us holy be. We ask that you would give us grace to live pure lives that would then consistently reflect the standing of purity that we have in your sight. We ask that you would inspire us to love and to good works as we meditate upon your works in history and your providence. And today as we turn again to the subject of your kingdom, we ask, Father, that you would help us to worship you as we consider that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom whose foundations, whose maker is you, our God, and a kingdom that will never, ever fail, will never fall, there will never be a coup that will knock Christ off the throne. We worship Him today as our great and glorious King. And we ask, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, we began a look last week at the subject of the Kingdom of God. We're going to continue that study this week. I do want to brush up on what we looked at last week by way of review. We noted that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as good citizens, we need to know a little bit about the kingdom that we're a part of. So, we began by recognizing that the kingdom of God is the reign of God, the rule of God over this world, and that that reign and rule is over all people, but it's particularly in and through His people, and then we looked at several points regarding that. First of all, we noted that over 130 times in the scriptures we have the statements kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, or kingdom referring to the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. With that many statements in the New Testament alone, those are in the New Testament alone, with that many statements, the scriptures show us that there is much to be said about this kingdom. So there's much we need to know about this kingdom as well. We noted that when we see the titles Kingdom of Heaven and Kingdom of God, that we ought not to think that those are two separate kingdoms. Kingdom of Heaven and Kingdom of God are one in the same kingdom. Those are two different titles referring to the same. We noted this by looking at several parallel passages where these terms are used interchangeably. In Mark chapter 1, it says after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee and he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, we go to Matthew chapter 4, and it says from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same Christ, same time frame, and preaching the same message. So this is the same kingdom. We also saw from Matthew 18 that 
Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. But then in a parallel passage in Luke, we have the wording, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means mention it. Enter it. So there we have kingdom of God mentioned. These are the same kingdoms. Well, we looked at two points last week. We looked at the time frame of the kingdom and the king of the kingdom. Regarding the time frame, we have seen from the scriptures that the kingdom is already established, but it is not yet fully, completely realized. It is here. And we mustn't say for a moment that the kingdom is not a present reality. Why? Because Jesus came and he said, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of heaven has come. Was Jesus casting out demons by the power of God? Yes, he was. The kingdom of heaven clearly had come at the time of Christ. We saw other scriptures supporting that, I think, very clearly. So, the Old Testament had prophesied that a kingdom would come, that God was reigning, and God has always reigned over this world, but that there would be a unique reign of God that would be inaugurated in the future. And then we have Jesus come on the scene and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have John the Baptist come on the scene and preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have Jesus sending out the disciples to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we have the apostles in the book of Acts going through and preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we have statements about the kingdom of heaven throughout the Gospels and the Epistles. I think this shows that the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament has dawned. And it is established right now. We're not waiting for it to be established. But then we also noted that there are another body of texts which indicate that there is a, a, a fullness of the kingdom which is yet future. So, kingdom is here, it's already, but there are things that have not yet been fully fulfilled regarding the kingdom. We have some statements like, Luke 19.11 Now as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. You see, Jesus had already said that the kingdom of God is here, but then the people thought that there was going to be a physical manifestation of the kingdom that was going to appear immediately, and so Jesus was correcting them that that was not going to take place. We have in Matthew 25, speaking of the final judgment, the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That hasn't happened yet. We have not reached that final judgment. But as we will see today from the scriptures, if you are a believer in Christ, and you have been regenerated by the power of God, you have been transferred into the kingdom of God already. But you have not inherited the fullness of the kingdom yet. That is yet to come. We noted that these are things that you can believe regardless of whether you're premillennial, regardless of whether you're amillennial, regardless of whether you're postmillennial. Okay? We can believe 
that Christ is reigning over his kingdom today. And we can believe and be consistent, whether we're pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, that there will be a future manifestation of the kingdom as well on this earth. Now, there's plenty of discussion about what that will be. We can even talk about that a little more after lunch today, which I plan on doing. But here, though, I mentioned an error that we need to make sure and avoid. I mentioned this last week. And that is the error that was propagated by the early form of pre-tribulational premillennialism, which we commonly call dispensationalism, in the classical form of dispensationalism, when it was first being put together in the 1800s, and then some held it even into the 1900s, and there are some that still hold to this error today, but less and less of dispensationalists even hold to it. It's dropping by the wayside, for which I'm very thankful. But they held to the error that Christ came, offered an earthly kingdom to the Jews. The Jews refused the earthly kingdom, and so Christ put that plan on hold. He postponed the kingdom until a future date, and then when Christ returns again, then the kingdom is going to be given back to Israel. Now, we noted many problems last week regarding that, and I want to make a clarification about that, and then I want to walk us through a, a little logical sequence right quick to help us understand why that's an error. First of all, we noted from the scriptures that it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Christ would die. Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant, the one who, by whose stripes we would be healed. Please the Father to bruise him. We have uh, Psalm 22, that he would be pierced. We have Psalm 16, that he would be raised from the dead. Okay? So we have all these scriptures prophesying that Christ is going to die. According to the postponement view, if the Jews had accepted the kingdom, Christ would never have gone to the cross. So the offer of the kingdom was to the Jews... They disobeyed God by refusing that, and then Christ went to the cross as a result. But if they had accepted the kingdom, that view says Christ would have established the kingdom on the earth. Now, those who hold that view you have to do something with all those prophecies. They have to do something with the fact that it was said that Christ would die hundreds of years even before he came and died just by way of explaining what's going on, they have a system that they have to plug numerous scriptures into. And the system, quite frankly, is not a biblical system. And so when they start plugging scriptures into it, that they have to explain somehow, all of a sudden they have all kinds of errors that begin to pop up. But consider this for just a moment. They say that God knew that the Jews would reject the kingdom. Okay, So they believe God knows everything. So, God knew that when Christ came and offered the Jews the kingdom, that the Jews would reject that. And so, God then did, in one sense, plan on Christ going to the cross from the beginning. That's actually kind of a clever way of trying to get around the fact that it was prophesied that Christ would die hundreds of years before it happened. 
You see, actually, the whole testimony of Scripture is the Gospel. And the Gospel says that Christ, the very Son of God, was given by the Father to die to redeem the people. And that that was not in any way, shape, or form a parenthesis in God's plan. You see, the dispensational hermeneutic says that the whole gospel age and era is just a parenthesis. It's just stuck in the middle of God's redemptive history because the Jews fouled up and God's going to go back to the Jews and complete his original purpose and his main purpose after the church is taken out of the way in the secret rapture. But you see what that does is that minimizes the gospel and the work of Christ, quite frankly. And I speak this, uh, I do believe that there are very genuine, sincere Christians that hold to this system, but I do think that it does diminish the value of the gospel in that respect that I just mentioned. But, okay, so they believe that God knew that Jesus would offer the kingdom to the Jews and then the Jews would reject that kingdom and then Christ would go to the cross. Here's how they explain that. They say, well, it's just like Adam in the Garden of Eden. God knew that Adam was going to sin in the Garden of Eden, but God planned for redemption to take place. And so, see, it's just like that. Ah, but is it just like that? Let's do a little logic here for a moment. What they're doing is using an analogy. They're saying this is like the other, right? They're saying Christ offering the kingdom to the Jews and them rejecting it and God knowing that in advance that is like Adam and God knowing that Adam would sin. Okay? So are there some similarities between those two? Yes, there are some similarities, right? Did God know that Adam was going to sin? Yes. We have to say yes. God knows all things. Did God know that he was going to provide redemption even though Adam sinned? Yes, he did. But here's where the analogy breaks down and where it shows that it's a false analogy. It's comparing apples to oranges instead of apples to apples. Did God command Adam to do something and if Adam had obeyed, all the human race would have been damned? No. No. Adam was in a state of life, of righteousness before God. God commanded him to be obedient. If Adam would have obeyed, he would have remained in a state of righteousness, and all those born after him would have remained in a state of righteousness. Here's where the analogy that is false. This view that says the kingdom is postponed says that Christ offered the kingdom to the Jews that if they would have accepted it, that Christ would have never gone to the cross. But the scriptures are so clear, if Christ didn't die, everybody's damned. <laughs> you see, we looked at that last week. We asked, well, how would people have been saved? Would they have been saved by keeping the sacrifices? By the blood of bulls and goats, no one is saved. Well, would they have been saved by keeping the law? 
No flesh shall be justified by keeping the law. But they have been saved through a general faith in God. Well, there's a problem with that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So, here's why this is a false analogy. And I'm not cursing, I'm using theological terminology. The postponement view sets up a scenario that is damned if you do, damned if you don't. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. If they had accepted the kingdom, everybody would be damned. Because Christ would have never gone to the cross. But then because they rejected the kingdom, they were damned. Because they rejected the king, who is Christ himself. And that generation of Jews then were lost who rejected Christ. So you see that? But does God put people in that situation where he commands them to do something that if they obey him, he will then damn them for it? No. No, most definitely not. What type of a God would that be? Who commands us to be obedient to him in some respect, and then if we did it, he would turn around and say, Ha, 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 you're damned to hell. So, you see how serious this error is to say that. That by way of review. We also saw, though, of course, that the king is reigning on his throne. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But I do want to warn us at times about errors that we should not fall into that are out there. And as I mentioned, there are still people who hold to that view. I, I spoke with a man just just a year ago that uh, holds to that view. So that view is still still present and very alive and well in certain circles. Well, as we move forward now, I want us today to consider the citizens of the kingdom. Who are the citizens of the kingdom? Kingdoms have citizens, right? People with special rights and privileges as citizens of the particular kingdom or particular nation. Well, the kingdom of God has come. And we can therefore be citizens of the kingdom. Look at Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. Colossians chapter 1. And begin with verse 12. It says, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, transferred us, into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice the present tense there. It says that he has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption. So, those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ are citizens right now in the kingdom of the Son of God. But, 
in light of the fact that the kingdom is already, but not yet, fully fulfilled, we do await also an inheritance that is to come. And we'll talk a little bit about what that is in a moment. But as we consider ourselves as citizens of the kingdom, let's talk first about gaining citizenship. How do we gain citizenship in the kingdom of God? Then let's talk about characteristics of kingdom citizens. Then let's talk about characteristics of non-citizens. And then let's talk about inheriting the kingdom. So first of all, how do we gain citizenship in the kingdom of God? Well, we have to be born again. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, let's begin with verse 1. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God, we must be born again. That means we must be made spiritually acceptable and righteous and alive in God's sight. John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Pretty clear statement, right? If you are not born again, you are not a citizen of the kingdom of God. I believe if you are born again, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. As it said in Colossians, you've been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And then Nicodemus, of course, says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So, first of all, we have to be born again to be citizens of the kingdom. Secondly, we have to be super righteous to be citizens of the kingdom. Born again and super righteous. Look over at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to focus on 19. I know this is a passage which has a lot of stuff in it, but focus in on what it's saying about the kingdom of heaven, okay? Beginning with verse 17, Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds 
the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying there that you have to be super righteous to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, when he said, your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, those people are like, what? These are the guys that know the law. These are the guys that are tithing their herbs. And you got to be more righteous than that? Well, I do want to bring out in the context that this is speaking about ethics. It is speaking about obeying the commandments of God. And the Pharisees were hypocrites. How many times did Jesus blast them for their hypocrisy? But I do also want to point out that the super-righteousness which we must have to enter the kingdom has to be an alien righteousness. And what I mean by alien is not extraterrestrial, but I mean a righteousness that is foreign to ourselves. Why is that? Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it must be through the righteousness of another that we enter the kingdom, and then we are supposed to pursue righteous works as a result of thankfulness at heart that we have been made righteous in God's sight. And whose righteousness is the righteousness that counts as ours, that makes us super righteous to enter the kingdom? That's Christ, isn't it? Look over at uh, Philippians chapter 3, and we'll see a former Pharisee comment on this. Philippians chapter 3. Here we have a Pharisee talking about righteousness. And we have a Pharisee describing to us the super-righteousness that he desires so that he will be able to persevere and attain unto the kingdom. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Notice that? Our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here we have a Pharisee, and he's going to comment on righteousness. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He said, I was keeping outwardly the commandments of the law. But what does he say in verse 7? But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, notice this next phrase, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, there's a super-righteousness. It's the righteousness which is through faith in God. 
So only those that are super righteous will enter the kingdom. Those that have the faith of Christ and who have the righteousness that comes by faith, not by keeping the law. But then we strive to keep the commandments of Christ out of faithfulness to the one who made it possible for us to be citizens in the kingdom. So we have to be born again. We have to be super righteous. You know what? We also have to be humble. The humble. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So the humble. What do the scriptures say? God resists the proud but gives what to the humble? He gives grace to the humble. The sign of one who has truly been regenerated is humility before God recognizing our own lowliness, recognizing our own sinfulness in contrast to the majesty and the righteousness of God. And then we show that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So the born again, the super righteous, and the humble, then also the persevering the ones who persevere remember the parable of the soils where the seeds are cast on the soil some of them spring up and then with one you know the weeds thorns and choke it out things like cares of this world and riches and then we have the sun scorching them out and it says that they did not fully have root and they did not persevere right the good seed, though, was rooted, and it persevered. You know, there's a saying that we're probably all familiar with, once saved, always saved. Well, that's true. Those who are saved will persevere. But I think another way that we could say that, and perhaps even a better way, is once saved, always being saved. Once saved, always being saved. What that indicates is that we realize that the evidence that we have truly been saved is that we persevere or continue and do not abandon the faith. And the scriptures speak about that over and over again. It speaks about that in Hebrews, that we're to beware lest there, any of us are deceived through the deceitfulness of sin. 
It says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. It says we have become. It doesn't say we will become partakers of Christ if we hold this to the end. It's not saying if we just hang on to the end, then we'll actually be saved. But it's saying we have become partakers if we hold our confidence steadfast to the end. Namely, it's evidence that we have truly been regenerated, truly been saved if we persevere. Those who do not persevere show that they were never citizens of the kingdom to begin with. So, citizenship. We must be born again. We must be super righteous. We must be humble. And we must be persevering. What then are some other characteristics of citizens of the kingdom? We are violent, we are obsessed, we are poor, we are abused, and we are humble, just to name a few. Let's look at the scriptures. Citizens of the kingdom are violent, obsessed, poor, abused, and humble. We're violent. Look over at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And children, pay very close attention. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. When I say that we're violent, if we're citizens of the kingdom, we need to know what the Bible says about that. We're not talking about that you're supposed to uh, be beating up on your brothers and sisters. But notice what it says in Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, what does that mean? That the violent take the kingdom of heaven by force. Does that mean that there are wicked, violent men and women out there that are defeating the kingdom of heaven? No, you know, there's a parallel passage which helps us understand the meaning of this. Luke chapter 16, verse 16. says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Pressing into it. The violent take it by force. What is that a picture of? It, it almost seems to me as uh, like a, a military picture. And there's this kingdom and there are people who want to enter this kingdom and they will not be denied entrance they will not be denied so they're pressing in pressing in that's the picture of a citizen of the kingdom that's a characteristic 
They're saying, God, I must be in your kingdom. I will not be denied. My God, do not deny me the privilege of entering your kingdom. And so they are pressing into the kingdom. They want to enter so badly that they will do whatever God calls them to do to become citizens of the kingdom. You know, there are people out there, aren't there, who want something so badly that they will work and work and work and work till they get it. Even non even non believers. I remember reading about Jay Leno who wanted he wanted to enter a college particular college and he turned in his application and they turned him down and he turned it in again and they turned him down and he turned it in again and they turned him down so finally he determined that he was going to go and sit in the admissions office of this college eight hours a day as long as it was open until they accepted him and that's exactly what he did and I think it was like 30 or 40 days later they finally said okay you can join the college because he wasn't leaving (laughs) You see, even the worldly people know that there's something good to attain and they will fight for it until they get it. Citizens of the kingdom will not be denied entering the kingdom of God. It is so precious to them, so valuable to them to be a part of the kingdom that they say, God, I will do whatever you require to be a citizen of your kingdom. And they will not be denied. So, the violence are citizens of the kingdom. How about the obsessed? The joyfully obsessed will enter the kingdom. Uh, Consider the parable of the hidden treasure and then the pearl of great price for a moment. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. He's obsessed He has to have the kingdom. This man has to have the treasure. And those who want to enter the kingdom are like that. It is so glorious to them, so beautiful to them, and the king is so worthy of their allegiance that they are obsessed with the kingdom of heaven. And they must have it. Consider the parable of great price, the pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. I mean, that's a guy who's obsessed with this pearl, right? He's like, everything, I'm giving up everything for this. I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to sell, I'm going to sell the photographs for my wedding. I'm going to sell my wife's wedding dress. I'm going to sell everything to get this pearl. Everything that I have, I will sell to get this pearl. What's the picture of there? Somebody who is obsessed because they realize the value of the kingdom of God that is so high that they will give up everything to be able to possess the kingdom and to be in the kingdom. Are we obsessed about the kingdom of God? Doesn't mean you got to go out and sell everything. I'm not saying that. Jesus didn't tell everybody to do that. 
But do you want it that badly? Do you want to be a citizen in the kingdom? Do you want to be living for the glory of the king? Do you want to be found worthy and persevere in the kingdom? And is it more beautiful to you than everything else in this life, in this world? Because there the king sits on his throne. Our King Jesus, sent by God the Father, who applies that work of redemption by the power of the Holy Spirit. The only, the only thing in this life that we can be righteously addicted to is the kingdom of God and pursuit of the kingdom of God and His glory. But you know what? We better be addicted to that. We better be obsessed with pursuing the kingdom of God. Ours, of course, maintaining the balance of not neglecting the kingdom calling which for a father is looking after his parents and, or his children and for ministering to his wife. You see, we maintain the balance, but it's with full motivation, joyful desire to pursue the glory of the kingdom and be found worthy of the kingdom. The violent, the obsessed. How about the poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. Another word for those that are humble before God. For those who recognize their lowliness in the presence of a thrice holy God. What about the abused? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do we bend over backwards to avoid persecution? We can at times, can't we? How do we do that? We do it oftentimes by zipping our lips. We don't want people to think poorly of us, so we don't promote the kingdom of God by giving the gospel or by giving a rebuke when necessary. And so our fear of men is greater than our fear of God and thus we don't promote the kingdom which may lead will lead Jesus said we will have trials and persecutions in this life if you take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ even in the United States of America you will face persecution it may be in the form of ridicule rejection perhaps not physical persecution. I remember Mark Webb once had a man who came up to him and said, you know, things are just going so well for me. Everybody everybody I know, everybody thinks well of me and I never have any problems with anybody. And Mark said, I can think of no greater cause for concern than that's the case with you. That sure wouldn't have been a man that was standing for the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, those that are non-citizens are characterized as well as the citizens. Non-citizens, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
verses 9 and 10 give a list of people who are not citizens and who will not inherit that final kingdom. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are characterized by these lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God. It goes on and says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, justified, sanctified. You've been purified by the work of Christ, the Spirit of God. In Galatians 5.21, it says, Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice there the word practice. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because we know that believers can fall into these sins. Fall into isn't a good way to say that. That makes it sound like you know, we're just walking through the dark and there was a hole there and we didn't see it and we tripped. No, that's not the way sin happens in our lives. We make a deliberate choice to rebel against God. A believer can commit murder, right? David was a man after God's own heart. But did he practice murder? Was that his practice? Was that his lifestyle? Is that what he continued in? No. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, we are to be born again. Super righteous. We are to be humble before God. We are to be the violent obsessed, joyfully obsessed folks of God. We are to be poor in spirit and be willing to suffer persecution. And now I want to talk for just a couple minutes at the end of our sermon about inheriting the kingdom of God. And here's where it gets really controversial for a little while, okay? So I just ask that you pay very close attention to what I say. If you have any questions, you know, I'm available to answer questions for you. But I'm going to say some things that some of you may not have heard before. You may not have heard this. I don't know all of you and your backgrounds really well yet. And so you may not have ever heard some of the things I'm going to say, but all I ask is that you listen to what the Scriptures present here and the case that I make from the Scriptures and then be willing to examine the Scriptures for yourselves to see if these things are true. Inheriting the kingdom. Those who are citizens of the kingdom right now will inherit a future kingdom. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about this after lunch, but I don't believe that that's going to be a millennial kingdom of a thousand years where Christ comes back, reigns on the earth for a thousand years, then there's the final judgment and then the new heavens and new earth. 
I believe that we are in the period that can be described as a millennial kingdom now because the kingdom has been established and Christ is reigning on his throne. But that Christ will return and that when he returns, immediately he will raise all of the dead. There will be the final judgment. The unrighteous will be cast into hell. The righteous will then inherit the kingdom. And that kingdom will be the new heavens and the new earth that God will create in which righteousness dwells, as it speaks of in Second Peter. I'll talk a little more about that main structure after lunch today. But what I want to talk about right now is who will inherit that final kingdom. The first point is only those that are resurrected from the dead will inherit that kingdom. Now, if you hold to any form of premillennialism which says that Christ comes back before a millennial kingdom is established, then you believe that there will both be resurrected people on the earth and people who have not been resurrected and who will die. Because you believe that Christ came and he resurrected all those who had died who were Christians took them up to be with him, then came back down to the earth, either seven years later or immediately. And then you have this millennial kingdom that Christ is reigning over, but there are both people with incorruptible bodies and corruptible bodies dwelling on the earth. I don't believe that that is the case. I don't believe the scriptures teach that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I do want to mention again, this is within the Christian camp, okay? So I'm very, I'm very humbly presenting to you my viewpoint from the scriptures on these things. But do not make this an issue of fellowship, okay? But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have the kingdom mentioned twice here in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice, first of all, beginning with verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And then the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Okay? I believe Christ is reigning, as it's speaking of here, right now. When it says he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, that reign, I believe, is taking place right now. He is reigning in that way. And then will come the end when he will raise up all people from the dead and the righteous then will inherit the kingdom and then he will turn the kingdom over to his father because he will have conquered death. I believe he's reigning. But notice the word kingdom there. Notice the word kingdom. Now I want us to notice something in verse 50 about this kingdom. 
Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Notice that? The kingdom where Christ reigns so he puts all enemies under his feet. And then the speaking of inheritance and inheriting the kingdom, which is a future event for us. We're citizens now, but we will inherit the kingdom. But notice it says, flesh and blood cannot inherit. So what is that showing there? I believe that that's showing that we're not going to have a kingdom on this earth with both resurrected and non-resurrected people living at the same time. Because once Christ comes and establishes this kingdom in the new heavens and new earth and then turns the kingdom over to the Father, only resurrected people will be citizens of that kingdom. And it will be the righteous. Because after that judgment, the unrighteous will be cast into hell. Now, how does a premillennialist interpret this? Because obviously they have to have a different interpretation. They say that the, the kingdom here that is used is the same, same word, same concept, I believe, spoken of earlier in the same chapter, same discourse, they say that that kingdom means two different kingdoms. It's not the same, not the same kingdom. They, they have to say that to explain this according to their own system. So they say that the kingdom in uh, verse 24, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, that that is after the millennial kingdom. That kingdom there is millennial kingdom, and then the delivering takes place after Christ reigns on the earth. But then when it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that's talking about the kingdom of heaven. That's not talking about the millennial kingdom on the earth. But my question is, why is it not talking about the same kingdom? It's the same writer, same passage, same word. I think it's talking about the same kingdom. The same kingdom. So I believe only those who are resurrected from the dead will inherit that future kingdom to come. And so we don't have a time frame in which we have a millennial kingdom sandwiched between Christ's coming and the final resurrection when all people are raised. We don't have that kingdom where we have people walking around who are still going to die with people who will never die again because they've already been raised from the dead. So that's one point. The next one's even a little more controversial than that. I want to mention something right quickly. What is a Bible commentary? Do any of you have commentaries on the Bible? Okay. It's an opinion. A Bible commentary is a book or writing that is written to explain what the Bible says. And the commentaries that you have on your shelves are written by fallible men who make mistakes. Some of them may be more accurate than others, though, but it's a book that is used to explain the Bible. What if you had a commentary on your bookshelf that was divinely inspired? What if you had a commentary that was 
written by God himself, and therefore there were no errors in it, there were no mistakes in it whatsoever, and it explained things in the Bible. Would you use that commentary? I propose that most of you here today have that commentary in your hands or in your lap or sitting on your pew. And here's how this works. We have a New Testament and we have an Old Testament. Much of the New Testament is divinely inspired comments on the Old Testament passages of Scripture. How many times is the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament? I've had somebody tell me that there's a Greek New Testament out there. You realize the New Testament was written in Greek. There's a Greek New Testament out there that has in italics every place in the New Testament that either directly quotes the Old Testament or that alludes to it and that there are italics on every page in that New Testament. So we have a divinely inspired commentary on the Old Testament. Now, let's put it to use in considering who will inherit the kingdom. And I want to do this by talking about the Abrahamic covenant for just a moment. If you were to walk up to most any evangelical on the street and you were to ask him, so what does the Bible say about Abraham and the descendants of Abraham? If they knew the terminology, you could say, what does the Bible say about the Abrahamic covenant? There are two things that you're probably going to hear, right? One of those is that God made a divine land grant to the people of Israel, the ethnic Jews, and that they are the ones that will inherit that land again, that kingdom, in the end times. That's going to be one of the things that, that you will hear. If you turn on a Christian radio station, you're going to hear that over and over and over again. If you turn on John Hagee, you know, there's a divine mandate, you know, land grants, and God has given this land to the Jews. What's another thing that you're going to hear? You're going to hear that we have to bless the national or ethnic people of Israel or we will be cursed by God. Right? You guys have heard those things, right? Maybe, maybe you come from a system or a camp where you promoted those even in the past. Maybe you still hold to those. I want to take us to the divine commentary to see if we can understand a little bit about this Abrahamic covenant, which has to do with the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Okay? And just, again, just bear with me. Again, this is within the Christian camp. But let me tell you this, what I'm about to present to you is the historic Christian position. It is the historic Christian position. Up until the last 150 years, those things that are so prominent today, that are believed about Israel and the land and whatnot, they weren't held to by the Christian church. Those are new ideas in Christianity. Doesn't make them wrong, doesn't make them right. But if something has just come around in the last 150 years of the church, my basic admonition to people is, you better consider it very carefully before you believe it. 
Because God's Holy Spirit has been at work for a little more than 150 years in helping people understand the scriptures. <laughs> okay? But let's go to the, the divinely inspired commentary and see what it says about these things. And who is blessed with Abraham and believing Abraham? And who is an inheritor of the promises made to Abraham? Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And realize that this is, this will directly quote Genesis chapter 12 where God is speaking to Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to read for you Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. And take a look at, as I'm reading from Genesis 12, 1 through 3, take a look at Galatians 3 beginning with verse 7 down through verse 9. So you're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, 7 through 9. And we're asking here the question, what is the main point of the Abrahamic covenant? Is the main point that God gave Israel a land and that we have to see, even through military might, that Israel keeps the land? Is the main point that we have to protect and bless Israel or God's curses will fall upon us? Well, let's look at this and consider. First of all, listen, I will read from Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3 and verse 7. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those, or him, who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you're in Galatians 3, begin reading with verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Do you see this? This is a divinely inspired commentary on Genesis chapter 12. Who are... What people... Which individuals are the true descendants of Abraham? Is it those who have a bloodline that can be traced back to Abraham? Those in this sense, as is spoken of in this divinely inspired commentary, it says, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Only those who are of faith. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify who? The Gentiles, by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Oh, the New Testament just abolishes the idea that God places great importance on bloodlines. You see, it's not about the physical 
ethnical people. It's about those who are of faith. If you are of faith, you are a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham in faith, as it says here. And what is the main point of the Abrahamic covenant? This we must get. Okay, even if you end up disagreeing with me on some of these things, please, please get this. The main point of the Abrahamic covenant is Christ and the gospel. It is Christ and the gospel. It is not dirt in Palestine. <laughs> it is Christ and the gospel. That's the point. That is the main point. Oh, we hear so often about the dirt in Palestine and there are people who live tuned into the news and what's happening over on that piece of dirt in Palestine. And oftentimes they miss the gospel. Oftentimes the whole main point they couldn't even explain to you about the Abrahamic covenant and the whole main point of the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, please, please, my friends. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel to Abraham. And then he, when he says in you, all the nations shall be blessed, which is a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 12. What's he saying there? The nations are blessed by the preaching of the gospel and people becoming sons of Abraham. It's not about, it's not about whether or not we militaristically, politically support the ethnic Jewish people. That's not how we are blessed and how the nations are blessed. According to the divinely inspired commentary, it's by the gospel going forth and people becoming spiritual descendants of Abraham. And that it was all about the gospel. It's about the gospel. Because who is the main seed that was spoken of there in Genesis. When it says that he will bring about a seed and raise up a seed, it is Christ. Look at verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, we might receive the promise. And then down to verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and your seed who is Christ. Christ is the seed. So, who were the promises made to? Was it made to only the physical descendants of Abraham? Ultimately, it was a promise to Christ that Christ would come. And then, to all those who were in Christ and then true spiritual children of Abraham, we inherit the promises. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, doesn't matter. See, this isn't anti-Semitic, what I'm saying. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that a Jew can't be saved. I'm not saying that a Jew cannot inherit the promises of God. Far from it. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. <laughs> the Apostles were Jews. They will inherit the kingdom of God. But so will we. 
so will we. Because we are true children of Abraham if we are in faith and are blessed with believing Abraham. But it's not about the ethnic people. Now, I do believe there will be a revival amongst the Jewish people, but they will be coming to Christ. (laughs) And they will be saved by believing in Christ. And they will inherit just as we inherit through Christ. In no other way. See, note down there in Galatians 3, 26-29, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Just the Jews? No, you are all sons of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And notice this, then you are heirs according to the promise. (laughs) What promise? The promises made to Abraham. We will inherit the kingdom. We will inherit the kingdom if we are in Christ. Whether we are Jew or Greek, we will inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's not just speaking to Jews. Some have said that the Sermon on the Mount only applies to the Jews, another error of classical dispensationalism. You see, because they believe that it all revolves around the Jews and the Jews getting the promises. I I think they miss these clear statements from Scripture. We are all blessed with believing Abraham if we are of faith, and we will inherit the kingdom. We will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. A final scripture to turn to. Hebrews chapter 11. You guys have been very patient today. Hebrews chapter 11. Was it all about the land for Abraham? Was that the most important thing even to Abraham? Look again at the divinely inspired commentary on the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11 beginning with verse 8. We hear so much about the land. But consider this. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance... And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Familiar terminology? We just saw that, didn't we, in Galatians? Are we heirs of that promise as well? Yes, we are. We just saw that emphatically, clearly. So it's about the land, right? And inheriting Palestine, right? And that's what it was all about for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. No, look at the next verse. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see that? When he dwelled in the land, it was as a foreigner. As in a foreign country. But he was looking forward to the promise. 
the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I believe the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. See, it's about the gospel. It's about Christ. I greatly, greatly respect Pastor John MacArthur. But there's one area that I disagree with him in. Pastor MacArthur said, if you get Israel right, you will get eschatology right. I said, if you get Christ right, you will get eschatology right. It's not all about Israel. It's about Christ. It's not about the ethnic people. It's about the true seed, the spiritual people, both Jew and Gentile. It's not about a piece of dirt over in Palestine. It's about inheriting the new heavens and the new earth as righteous people in Christ Jesus. And that is all made possible by the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. And so we will inherit the kingdom by the grace of God, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your promises, and I I do ask that you would give us clarity into your word. A very complicated subject in many respects. But yet I think there's some clear statements which we need to hold to. And oh, may we center it around Christ and around his gospel. Pray that you'll be with us now. Thank you for this day that you've blessed us with to worship you. Pray that you'll give us grace and strength throughout this week to serve you well. And that you'll bless our time of meal and fellowship together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.